Hello and welcome to the Animation Forum podcast for Friday 3rd of March with me, Ian Welsh. Recently I spoke with Janina Lucas, Head of Ethics and Compliance at Bayer, about some of the issues likely to come up at Innovation Forum's Responsible Sourcing and Ethical Trade Forum coming up in a few weeks. We discussed the benefits and challenges from due diligence and the pros and cons of companies taking a proactive versus a reactive approach to these difficult human rights matters. And earlier this week, I caught up with my colleague Natasha Bodnar to find out the latest news about the Future Food event coming up in Amsterdam in May. That's all to come. First, though, it's time for some sustainable business news this week with B. Stevenson. In the US, the Biden administration has announced measures to crack down on child labor, which has seen a sharp increase in violations in recent months and years. US officials noted that since 2018, the Labor Department had seen nearly a 70% increase in child labor violations, including cases of illegal employment of migrant miners in hazardous industries. In the last fiscal year, 835 companies were found to have violated child labor laws in the US. Officials have told reporters that the administration has created an interagency task force on child labor and is investigating the employment of children at companies including Hearthside Food Solutions and suppliers to Hyundai. The Biden administration will also be pushing for heavier penalties for companies that do violate laws, as current monetary penalties are not viewed as high enough to be an effective deterrent. This week, UN member states will begin the final talks for a new High Seas Treaty to conserve and sustainably manage marine biodiversity outside of national jurisdiction. 64% of the world's ocean lies outside national boundaries, and this area is mostly lacking regulation. A treaty will be crucial to protecting marine life, which is increasingly coming under threat from unregulated fishing and deep-sea mining, amongst other activities. The talks will be critical to enforcing the 30x30 pledge made at COP15 in December, a promise to protect 30% of the ocean by 2030. Despite failure to reach a consensus at negotiations in March and August 2022, and delays to the present talks, it is hoped that countries will reach a compromise in order to secure this landmark treaty that will transform global ocean governance, safeguard food security for communities around the world, amongst other important issues. Golden Agri Resources and Malaysia's IOI Group have pulled out of the high-carbon stock approach, bringing the total of palm oil giants who have quit the No Deforestation Initiative to four in three years. JAR and IOI joined Wilmar International and Syme Derby Plantation, which both left in 2020, citing governance issues and pandemic-induced budget constraints, respectively. GAR has referred to an unnecessary overlap between the HCSA and the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil. The HCSA was established in 2014 to distinguish forest areas that can be developed by companies from those that should be left standing due to their high carbon stock. Environmental groups have said that by leaving the approach, these companies are avoiding obligations on transparent reporting on sustainability commitments. Grant Russellman of Greenpeace, which co-chairs the HCSA, has said that, for now, he isn't concerned about the future of the organisation. However, he noted that companies quitting voluntary schemes does undermine the use of voluntary measures as evidence towards meeting legal and regulatory requirements, such as the EU's recently enacted deforestation law. An advertising campaign by Lufthansa has been banned by the UK advertising watchdog for misleading claims about the airline's environmental impact. The campaign featured a front-on depiction of a plane with the earth as its underside and a tagline, connecting the world, protecting its future. 
While sea airlines stated that the line wouldn't be seen as an absolute promise on environmental impact and remained open to interpretation by consumers, the UK Advertising Standards Authority said that the consumers would view the ad as a claim that the airline had already taken significant mitigating steps to reduce its environmental impact. Lufthansa aims to halve carbon emissions by 2030 and become carbon neutral by 2050. It's the latest notable brand to be flagged by the ASA, after a promise in 2021 to crack down on misleading green claims by firms. Other brands who have been called out include Ryanair, HSBC and Unilever's Persil Detergent. The Innovation Forum team is working hard on developing our 2023 spring conference season. We'll be discussing responsible sourcing and ethical trade, sustainable apparel and textiles, the future of food and business and climate action on Scope 3 emissions. Do go to the Innovation Forum website for all the latest information on how to register at best rates. On the 3rd and 4th of May, we'll be holding the next in our Future of Food conference series in Amsterdam. To find out more, earlier this week I caught up with conference director Natasha Bodnar. Welcome back to the podcast, Natasha. Thanks, Ian. So we're going to talk about the Future of Food event coming up in Amsterdam on the 3rd and 4th of May. Give us a quick reminder of the format of the event this year and where we're meeting. So as you mentioned, we are going to be in Amsterdam, so back in person. The format of this event is going to be completely off the record, so we're really focused around having some candid discussions and debate with no strict presentations and PowerPoints, but we will have a very large mixture of formats with plenaries, Q&As, and a large amount of working group and breakout sessions as well. So very mixed two days with hopefully lots of chance for audience engagement and interaction as well. And who is the event for? The attendees are going to represent a broad range of key stakeholders who anyone who's involved in defining, planning or implementing sustainable practices across agricultural supply chains. So we have a broad range of companies from the drinks industry, the food sector, as well as the agricultural industry as well. What have been the key issues that have emerged on the agenda as you brought the event together? The event obviously is focused really around seizing the opportunities within that food and drinks brands and how they're adapting to the market shifts and planetary pressures that we're seeing and how they're working to deliver regenerative and resilient food systems. What recent additions have there been to the agenda? We've recently just added a session which is going to be looking at which agriculture innovations are helping companies to hit their sustainability targets. We've decided to add this because obviously there's a huge amount of investment going into the agri-tech technologies and we just thought we wanted to have a session looking at where this money is going. Is it going into startups that can help meet their sustainability targets? And obviously just want to have a discussion around the causes for optimism in this space and what innovations are out there and that are happening and we have to look forward to for 2020-30. Any notable new panellists since we last spoke? Probably the most recent one just joined us at the end of last week, which is Arla Foods, their Executive Vice President and Chief Agriculture and Sustainability Officer, will be joining our opening session of the forum. So very much looking forward to having her with us. Excellent. There are some really good people coming. Details, of course, available on the Innovation Forum website. Natasha, how can our listeners get involved? The best way to get involved is to register online on the Future of Food website. Currently, we have a discount deadline. You'll save 300 euros. It goes until the end of this week. So today, Friday, the 3rd of March. But we will extend this for podcast listeners through to next Wednesday. That's right. That's listeners, so important. So you can take advantage of the discount through to the end of business on the 8th of March using the discount code podcast when you check out on the Innovation Forum website. And of course, Natasha, are there any sponsorship opportunities still available? 
There certainly are. So please do get in touch if you are interested in partnering on this event. We still do have a few spots available. So it'd be wonderful to have those conversations. If you are interested, then get directly in touch with me or my colleague, Anita Thompson. Great. Natasha, looking forward to it. It'll come around soon enough. Thanks very much. Thank you. The first Innovation Forum event of the year is coming up at the end of March, when we will be hosting this year's Responsible Sourcing and Ethical Trade Forum. I'm delighted that Janina Lucas, Head of Ethics and Compliance at Bayer, will be joining us. And a few days ago, we spoke about some of the discussion points we expect to come up when we meet in London in a few weeks. We're going to talk a bit about impacts of legislation on ethics and social impact policy. There's a clear move for legislation to require companies to take a due diligence approach to human rights issues. I'm wondering from your perspective, what are the benefits and challenges from this? I mean, this is a huge question. Let me try to break it down in two parts. One really benefits for the people because they are in the end the ones who should benefit from the laws. But there are, of course, also some benefits for companies and also challenges for companies. But let me start with the humans. We are seeing so many numbers increasing when it comes to forced labor, when it comes to child labor. So many human rights issues that are linked to economic and labor relations where companies do play a role. And when we are seeing that legislations are increasing, it's not necessarily to blame companies or to have another burden for companies, but to put people at the core of the risk management, what companies are doing to really identify risk and mitigate the risk and for people. And when the companies who are falling under the certain laws are doing it in a very diligent way, there is a huge, huge benefit for the people. So legislation can be an accelerator, they for sure won't solve all issues around, but when more and more companies are required to do it diligently, I see there's a huge benefit. And also for companies, it's a benefit when we're looking on the world we are living in. There are so many topics from climate, from water, from biodiversity, from trade topics, from geopolitical topics. It's sometimes easy that certain issues may become a second priority because it's a lot. And legislations actually help also for companies internally that human rights is non-negotiable. It's a non-negotiable priority for both internally and externally. But yes, there are challenges for companies as well, especially, I guess, for those companies who have not started yet because they are confronted with a lot of homework to do. Good thing is it's not rocket science. You can build on classic risk management, but please put the people in the focus. So this could be maybe a challenge if you have not yet adapted processes to start adapting them and start realizing that, yeah, maybe I'm impacting human rights negatively, then it hurts, but you need to acknowledge it. And then you have transparency and then you can move forward. So it's a challenge if a company has not started yet, but the good news is, as I said, it's not rocket science and there's so many best practices out there. So companies can look and learn from others. What is also very challenging, and this is also pretty clear, it's not one law that is coming. There are many laws that are coming and they are not necessarily aligned. Following up the sheer and very fast evolvement, evolution of the laws, it's a challenge to track and also to find the bits and pieces where it's not aligned and then translating it to the business reality. So. That's challenging to not lose track, to be really ready for any legislation that is coming. 
which sometimes even contradicted to find the way through that jungle. Do you see this really as a shift for companies really to become more proactive than reactive? Is that something you're seeing? In the long term, yes. But also, to be honest, what I'm observing, especially since the last two years, where we see also a huge movement on the EU level when the Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive is discussed, or Norway has now its Transparency Act out, German has its Supply Chain Due Diligence Act out, what I'm currently more observing is very reactive in this way that there's a huge focus on the laws and translating these laws into business reality, adapting processes, having a huge focus on building a foundation at companies or when companies have already due diligence established to challenge its status quo, to reopen established processes where needed to. So I see a huge effort currently, which is playing music within a company to be ready from a process management system. But once that is established and once company finding its way also considering this legal implications, I see a huge possibility of a proactive movement. And this needs to be also appreciated from externals. I'm a bit afraid that there may be so many pushbacks from other sites, from investors, from civil society organizations, which make companies being stuck at the minimum what is required. I don't hope that is happening. I hope that the companies are incentivized. The better they are sharing, the more transparent they are, the better they can grow and going into the proactive way. But I see it more in the mid to long term. What eventually are the key elements that have to come together to allow for the level playing field to develop that we all hear so much about? Best would be actually that the binding treaty in business and human rights will be successful. But this is long, long journey. And I don't see it coming in the next month or in the next years, because then all countries and link to it would need to follow the same rules. In the interim, it's completely fine. And I think it's also good that others are starting so that other um, jurisdictions can learn to have at least legislations aligned at the biggest scope as possible. So that's why also we at Bayer, we are supporting very much the move on the EU level under the commission to have this corporate sustainability due diligence directive, because then at least the European member states would fall under the same frame. What it's needing for a level playing field is playing by the same rules. And currently we don't see that happening. Currently we see many legislations popping up with a different focus because each and every country has its own focus, which is fine and which is also legitimate. But when we are really talking about a level playing field, it needs to play by the same rules and is set ideally on the highest international level from the UN. But when this is not possible as a first step, take it on another level. And I really believe that the EU can contribute very much to that. Let's think a bit about some of the implications for Bayer specifically. What have these implications been for you? And how have you been engaging specifically on, on these, the changing legislation? The good news at Bayer is that we started with human rights due diligence many, many years ago. Almost 20 years ago, we've been founding also with other and 
initiatives and companies, the EU Global Compact. And by then we have already a long learning journey within our and within our history, how to put the people in focus when we are talking about our own operations, when we are talking about our supply chain, and when we are talking also about our downstream activities. So that is when the laws that are coming, and we have also laws such as the UK Modern Slavery Act or also the Australian Modern Slavery Act or different other reporting obligations. We have some experiences with them since some years, but when we are seeing now other legislations coming, such as the German Supply Chain Due Diligence Act, it causes some challenges and internally the challenge that are causing is that this law is not 100% aligned with the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. And when companies started already and designed their whole program against the UN guiding principles of business and human rights and are now confronted with a law which is not 100% aligned with the UNGPs, of course, you need to take it back. You need to check um, the processes designed, where to adapt it to still, of course, adhere to our commitment, our voluntary commitment to the UNGPs, but of course, being aligned with the legal requirements we are having in front of us. So let me give a particular example. In the UNGPs, the heart of due diligence is the risk assessment. We have clear guidances, clear criteria against what companies should identify and assess their human rights risks with a scope scale and irremediability. And yes, this is also part of the German Supply Chain Due Diligence Act, but they blend it also with the possibility to influence a risk and also how a company may be linked to it, like if we cause or contribute it. This is normally reserved in the UNGPs for designing measures and not for identifying risks. So whenever there is a deviation, it is with the company to analyze where to adapt, where we have good processes established, and where we need to find a good, robust compromise that we are satisfying both um, angles. Thinking forward then to the future, I mean, obviously this legislation is evolving, companies are adapting to it. You just mentioned just now some of the ways that Spire is engaging. Do you think that there's going to be less of an onus in the future about going beyond compliance? It used to be that companies always talked about taking a, the best practice was going beyond what was necessary just simply by compliance. Are we moving to a situation where taking a compliant approach will be in fact what companies will primarily need to do? Or will there still be, do you think, an onus on companies, the leading companies, to go beyond compliance, to keep moving forward? I wish I would know that. I don't hope that companies are sticking to compliance because that does, from my perception, does do not any really good for, for people when companies are only looking on the bare minimum. The world is evolving so fast. We are learning so much on how supply chains are operating, what also products are made when once they are leaving the company. I would love to see that companies stay flexible to be agile to adapt to the external needs. I think it's good that we will, with laws, have at least common ground as a starting point, but that they also go into a direction to be leading. I hope actually that in some years all companies on the level with the leading companies as of today, but the leading companies that they pave the way forward for the other companies so that they can continuously grow and learn. The good thing is of the laws which are out there, as for example, also in the German law, that they are including the effectiveness. 
that they are challenging companies within the law to stop activities that are not effective and further invest in those that are effective. And by that, there is a natural growing learning improvement. Yes, it falls under the compliance scope, but by testing, by learning, which measures may cause this desired impact for the rights holders, there will be still leading companies where other companies then may jump on the train, which is good. Don't get me wrong. I think it's good if there are leading companies who are paving the way. All of us need inspirations, but it will be a matter of time when the others need to be on their level because it's simply already inherent in the laws to strive forward, to be proactive and to be really looking on impact and not only on minimum check the box exercises. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. There's never going to be a situation where companies won't always be evolving because as you say, things change so quickly. What have you found are the best ways around sharing best practice or the most effective ways around sharing best practice? I like benchmarks quite a lot. I think the corporate human rights benchmark is doing a very good job also being transparent in why companies are scoring good and why companies do not get all full points in certain actions. But here we are talking really about the, I would say, call it the basics of due diligence. What I'm learning is when there is a company who has already a very good and stable due diligence program they have also a lot of good lighthouse projects on top. I think it's not that smart to look at companies with who are only going from one example to another example and project base because it's often then it disappears after a while. But the companies who have very good scores and benchmark, they have it really integrated. They have it integrated in governance structures. They have it integrated in senior management levels. They have it integrated in the way how they are operating so that human rights becomes a day-to-day -day activity and not voting nice to have one time example. They can be also used for inspirations. Sure, please go ahead with that. But I would really look on those companies who are recognized externally as having really a stable program in place. Every change always has impacts that were unforeseen or perhaps unintended. So what do you think are the potential unintended consequences of this shift towards a due diligence approach to human rights issues for business? Let me blend this maybe with the other question regarding leading and going beyond compliance. It can be because the world is complex and the world is diverse that there are companies who do only the minimal and checking the box only. But that missing the chance that transparency is something good and looking on transparency as are oh, this causes more work. And um, this can be a consequence if this is linked with sanctions, that transparency talking openly about human rights issues you have identified, that you may have types of forced labor in your supply chain, that you may found minors working in your operations, that when companies are talking about it, they should be protected, that they are courageous enough to speak up and not that they are overwhelmed and blamed by those violations they may have identified. Because in case this is happening, and we see it sometimes in media, that the second company are speaking up very openly. It's not incentivized, it's not welcomed, but the other way around that they are blamed for that they have violations in the supply chain. And this could cause that companies 
are not speaking openly about certain violations they may have found. This could be an unintended consequence if companies are sanctioned by India, by reputation, by whatever you can imagine, if they want to be transparent. And I see also the risk that companies believing external parties who are selling that one size fits all in solution. This had been increasingly raised in the last years, where there are many companies who are saying, I have the best certification scheme, give me that money and I promise I will ensure you a perfect due diligence in the supply chain ABC, or that you are using my IT tool and then you are completely compliant. Also here, don't get me wrong. I think those tools can help as a single pillar in the program. But I'm a bit afraid that there is a parallel market building on for checking the box. I have here that certificate. I have here something I'm proving that I checked that part of the supply chain and missing the opportunity to build the muscle, missing the opportunity to really understand what is the issue, because the issue can be understood when you are on the ground. When you have people, knowledgeable people on the ground, seeing with own ears and eyes what is the situation and not only making it a paper exercise. So this could be that paper exercises could be the result of due diligence. I don't hope that, but this could be also an unattended consequence. And lastly, that certain parts of uh, supply chains are separated. Let me put it in this way, that there may be supply chains ready following certain standards for the European market, but there's another whole parallel world with supply chains who are not falling under this regulation. This may cause some tensions. I bet it can cause some tensions that the idea is that it's not only for one company that the supply chain should follow certain standards, but that the entire supply network should follow the same standards, that we may top with two double standards depending on which supply chains you're looking for. But really, if I would say the biggest unintended consequence, it's a paper exercise and missing the opportunity to build the muscle. Just go back to your point around openness. Do you think that we don't yet have a situation where companies can feel comfortable to be honest about what's going on in their operations and supply chains. I mean, someone pointed out to me recently that any business that's got an agricultural supply chain, certainly a global supply chain, will have forced labour in it and they have to accept that. So they, we need to get away from a culture where companies are concerned about openness and talking about the problems because everybody has them and there needs to be a culture of transparency and also where companies feel that they can be honest about these issues and then try to, when they are on the ground, deal with them when they occur. It really depends. In some areas, openness is very appreciated and in some it's not. It really depends on the media, it depends on the country you are in. But as you said, when we are only looking at the millions of people working in a form of modern slavery, it would be a miracle if one company has none of them somewhere in their supply chain. So it is actually the other way around, as you said. All companies most likely have somewhere, maybe not in the direct business relationships, but for especially further up the supply chain, 
they have types of child labor or forced labor. This is pretty clear. Otherwise, it doesn't fit together. It, it would be a miracle if really these millions of, and we're talking really about more than 160 million of children still working instead of going to school. If this is only linked to one company or to one sector, no, it's inherent. It's systematic. And whenever it's systematic, it is applied to many companies. And then we are seeing that in reports, not all companies are speaking up. So either they really don't know, then the laws will help them that they are knowing it quite soon and talk about it, or they have made not good experiences by talking about it and they are decided and rather not to talk about it. It's interesting. In some respects, the approach should be our job here is to find the instances of modern slavery, of human rights breaches, of, of child labor in our supply chains and celebrate when we find them and can fix them. That's almost the way things should be, because if there's, there's an acceptance that the chances are there is going to be in the supply chain, then they need to find them. And the company says, we have none, clearly isn't looking properly. Exactly. And then you should challenge, is your tool to verify effective? If you find zero, it's, as I said, nearly impossible. Then maybe you should rethink your audit approach, or you may rethink your impact assessments, or you may rethink how the people are trained who are doing these checks and balances. It can be, of course, I don't also want to, to live in a world where people are shaming and blaming and are waiting for that one case. And finally, I found a type of forced labor. I don't also want to live in such a world, but to be very honest and make a reality check that in case you find nothing, in case you receive zero complaints and through your complaints mechanism, maybe the people don't know your complaints mechanism, or maybe the people who are verifying situations on the ground don't really know how to look for it. Or maybe the questions are not designed in such a way that you get to the core. That's why I like the laws when they are binding effectiveness, because then companies would need to explain why they don't find any cases. Maybe they don't find, that would be also super cool. But as such, looking on the risks, issues, violations we are seeing around the world, the other way around is more likely. How do you think legislation is going to evolve next? We talked about the move towards a due diligence approach. What's going to be next, do you think? I think there will be much, much more companies will be confronted from different angles, from due diligence and also from trade measures. I believe in the next five to 10 years, there will be a sheer amount of laws coming. When you are looking on how many national actual plans on business and human rights are still developing and evolving after the UNGPs had been introduced more than 10 years ago. And if you are reading the history and seeing when there is a national action plan, it's a matter of time when this becomes a law, companies will be confronted with many, many laws. So I believe it will accelerate even more. Do you think these laws are just going to be slightly different? There's always a challenge that everything is never the same. So are you concerned that there are going to be lots of different types of legal requirements in different environments that will require continual adjustments by companies? I'm afraid they will differ, and maybe for good reasons they will differ. Sometimes they are differing already today based on the human right to look at. We see some which are only focusing on types of modern slavery or types of child labor, but there are others who are looking on the whole universe of certain human rights. 
Some go more on the due diligence part and some go on the distinction. So currently we don't have that this very much aligned approach. I hope there will be much more alignment. I think this is also part of the first pillar of the UNGP is the policy coherence is the ask to the states when they are developing. But we see also the reality that this is currently not the case and companies would need to find their way through that. That's why also I would propose for companies to get ahead of that or really to manage it and being in the driver's seat. I know some lawyers don't want to hear that, but don't look at the laws, look at the UN guiding principles and business human rights and take an ambitious approach and prepare your company along with this. And then you should be in a very good position for all laws to come. But if you want to, or if you are designing your program law by law, which that's exhausting because you are every time a step behind and you have every time this time pressure it really also depends between six months or two years to adapt your processes so better understand where the laws are coming from and they are coming from the UNGPs. Make yourself as familiar as possible, understanding your company, understanding your risk, designing your processes accordingly, and then the laws should be easier to adhere to and not waiting for a law to come and then being very nervous and trying to adapt your already established uh, processes. I believe it doesn't stop. I believe it will become more and more and it is overwhelming. And it is really a sheer amount of laws um, companies are confronted with. So my huge recommendation would be read the UNGPs and prepare yourself before a law is setting you. But as you say, it's important for companies to take an ambitious approach and let's hope that more companies do. Listeners, if you want to hear more from Janina and more on these issues, then we are, of course, going to be in London for Innovation Forum's Responsible Sourcing and Ethical Trade Forum on the 29th and 30th of March. Go to the Innovation Forum website for full details of that. Janina, I look forward to seeing you at the event. But for now, Janina Lucas from Bayer, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. There is still space at the Responsible Sourcing and Ethical Trade event in London if you want to join us. Full details on the Innovation Forum website. The Innovation Forum website is also, as ever, the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. Do look out for the recording of our big carbon debate webinar from earlier this week that will be published in the next few days. And don't forget to register now to attend the Future of Food conference in Amsterdam on the 3rd and 4th of May and to take advantage of the €300 discount on passes. Use the discount code PODCAST at the checkout and you can take extended advantage of the offer until 8th of March next week. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next week, goodbye.